This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream fresh episodes every Thursday. Plus, don't forget to like and subscribe. This week, we're profiling Britain's most renowned architect, Sir Christopher Wren, as we approach the 300th anniversary of his death. Most well-known is his crowning achievement of St Paul's Cathedral, with its distinctive dome that still dominates the London skyline. But he was also a man at the vanguard of great change, who could have excelled in many fields, yet someone who, lucky for us, left a lasting legacy in stone. Exploring that legacy with us now is Dr Stephen Brindle, who's a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Welcome. Uh, Hello, Charles. So let's get into Sir Christopher Wren's family background first of all. When and where was the young Christopher born and into what sort of family? Into a sort of minor gentry family, Charles. His father, Christopher Wren Sr., was a clergyman. He was the rector of East Noyle in Wiltshire. And his mother, who was called Jane Cox, was the heiress to a local landowner. So the family were really of minor gentry rank. And when his mother died, his father inherited substantial property. There were three older sisters, several babies born to the Wrens died in infancy, but Christopher was their only son who lived. And he was a small and sickly child. And he was only ever quite a small man. We think he was only about five feet tall. Um, He was born in 1633. And in 1635, his father became Dean of Windsor. The family were royalists and they were high Anglicans, which meant that they supported the ritualist view of the church, supported by King Charles I and promoted by Archbishop Lord. But in the Civil War, that whole vision of the church was anathema to the victorious parliamentarian side, and the Wrens were driven from the deanery at Windsor, St George's Chapel, his father's chapel was pillaged, and they took refuge at East Noyle. And so Wren grew up in this very turbulent period as the reign of Charles I ended in civil war. And he was educated at first by his father and by the vicar. And he was taught Latin and mathematics. And it may be that he was educated at Westminster School during the 1640s, during the civil war years. There's a a memoir of of the Wren family which says this, but we've never the proof of it. At any rate, he was certainly a brilliant child. And he was accepted as a student at Wadham College, Oxford, aged 18 in 1650. It's worth saying as well, East Noyle in Wiltshire, kind of near the North Dorset border, so near the quite picturesque town of Shaftesbury. We just discussed it off air that it's the place where they filmed the famous Hovis advertisement, I think, uh, which was directed by Ridley Scott and where the boy pushes his bike up the hill and then rides down again. So that's one thing to point out. But also, if you're on the tourist trail, it's also quite near Stonehenge, and that will come up later in our conversation, won't it? Yes. So that's education and the family background covered for Sir Christopher. But we associate Wren with architecture, but he first embarked on this career in academia, didn't he? You said that he was very gifted in in a number of areas. Wren was um, a scientist, an astronomer, a mathematician. And this was in an age when there weren't the hard and fast divisions between subject and subject areas that there are now. He was what you might call a a Renaissance man. 
Now, the 17th century was an era of turbulent change. In almost every way, the monarchy was challenged and temporarily overthrown. Freedom of worship was established. And there was great social change in which gentry and middle-class people like the Wrens were becoming more politically important, more culturally significant, threatening the preeminence of the old elite of the aristocracy. And furthermore, it was in the 17th century that a scientific understanding of the world based on observation and experiment won its great triumph over religious, magical and superstitious ways of understanding life. In the early 17th century, in the reign of James I, educated people, including the king himself, still believed in witchcraft, magic and alchemy. But the mid-century decades, the 1630s and 40s and 50s, when Wren was growing up, saw the development in England and some other European countries, notably in the Netherlands and France, of a scientific and mathematical culture. So Wren went to Wadden College, Oxford in 1650, aged 18, and there he studied astronomy and anatomy, as well as mathematics and Latin. And he graduated as a Bachelor of Arts in 1651 and a Master of Arts in 1653. And his brilliance was recognised at Oxford because he immediately became a fellow of All Souls College, that is, a college which then, as now, only had graduates, people who'd already taken a degree as members. And this was the springboard for his career. And at All Souls, from 1653 to 57, he didn't really have any teaching responsibilities. He was free to engage in scientific work and experiment across a broad range. And he studied astronomy and medicine and anatomy and mathematics and mechanics, in particular the making of scientific instruments, and meteorology and geometry and surveying. And among the things we know he did in these years, when, remember, he was in his early 20s, was he built a transparent beehive, he made observations of the moon, he made a solid model of the moon, he carried out blood transfusions on dogs... Uh, The point was to see if blood transfusions could be done successfully on mammalian species. He made a model of the human eye, which gives you some idea of his extraordinary range. And as yet, there's nothing remotely to do with architecture. Yes, his talents know no bounds. Was he also an, an inventor? He was certainly an inventor as well. But what you have to remember is in those days, scientific instruments hardly existed. So if people wanted to, uh, to study subjects... A lot of the instruments had to be invented and made from scratch. I mean, for example, Wren went on to be appointed Professor of Astronomy at Gresham College in the city of London. Gresham College had been founded in the reign of Elizabeth by a remarkable merchant, Sir Thomas Gresham, as an institution of of higher learning for the city. And as Professor of Astronomy there, Wren helped to build a 35-foot long telescope And with it, uh, he made some of the first observations of the planet Saturn. But he was also engaged in experiments into how to calculate longitude at sea, the famous longitude problem. And as you may know, and listeners may know, this was eventually solved by a brilliant clockmaker called John Harrison, making a much more accurate clock, which could function accurately at sea. But anyway, Wren was aware of the problem. He tried to work out how to calculate longitude at sea. Now, at Gresham College, Wren had public responsibilities. He was required to give weekly public lectures in both Latin and English, and educated gentlemen with interests in astronomy and mathematics and the natural sciences began to attend his lectures at Gresham College and meet socially afterwards. And the Royal Society, which is still our premier 
Society for, for the Sciences, grew out of these gatherings at Gresham College after lectures by Wren. And Wren's many friends at the time included John Flamsteed, who became the first astronomer royal, and Robert Hooke, who was a pioneer of microscopy, as well as being another amateur architect. So the Royal Society, which was incorporated by King Charles II in 1662, really grew out of gatherings of gentlemen interested in the sciences who met after lectures by Wren at Gresham College. So Wren was right in there at the formation of the Royal Society. He is, as we said in the introduction, at the vanguard of great change. And it's just remarkable that a man who, as you've described, was perhaps so short in stature, could pack in so many talents into that smaller frame. <laughs> that small frame. Yes, I think that was remarked on at the time. Wren was, was not an imposing figure to look at. In 1661, he moved back to Oxford, where he became the civilian professor of astronomy. Uh, and at Oxford, he studied astronomy, but also mechanics and geometry. He invented a rain gauge. He invented a weather clock, which would measure humidity, air pressure, rainfall and temperature. There's that point about scientific instruments hardly existing and needing to be invented. So he was at the heart of the scientific culture, which was challenging old magical and superstitious ways of understanding the world, and which ultimately permitted the development of modern scientific and industrial society. And for people of his generation, culture and learning were really still a unified thing in which educated people might expect to study and be interested in, in almost anything, as you see. And one of the study subjects involved, of course, but only one, was architecture. Of course. And we'll jump into that in just a sec. But um, there is this other question about how we know so much about Sir Christopher Wren's life based on what you've just described. Where does all this information come from? The most important source is a book called The Parentalia, The Memoirs of the Wrens, which was written by his descendants by a son, son Christopher, and a grandson, Stephen, in the 18th century. And they still had access to family documents and to Wren's personal papers, a lot of which had disappeared. So for his architectural work, we have a, there are great collections of architectural drawings which survive. For his work on St Paul's and for the Crown, there are the official archives, which are well preserved. We don't have all that many personal papers in the form of letters and things, but we do have the parentalia, the memoirs of the Wren family. And so for that reason, we probably know more about Wren than about any previous architect in English history. It's a good thing that it survived because we're also able to do this podcast and do it in quite a lot of detail, which is useful. Let's now turn to this architectural aspect where Wren sort of finds a new passion, really. How did he become interested in building design? Well, you have to understand this in the context of an age when building culture, like everything else, was being transformed. At the beginning of the 17th century, pretty much all architecture in the British Isles and through, most, and through Europe was carried out by craftsmen, by carpenters and masons and bricklayers, with no involvement from an architect at all. The craftsmen provided the design, sometimes with involvement from the client, quite often with involvement from the client. The design would have been a negotiation between the craftsman and the client, and what the client could afford and what materials were available and what the site was would all have influenced that. And there were influences from Italy and France, in particular a number of Italian books on how to design classical buildings, but these were a relatively marginal influence, books like those of Sebastiano Serlio and Hans Friedemann de Vries, 
were really used as sources of ornament rather than as, um, as sources of whole designs. But in the 17th century, a different conception of architecture, one which had really been invented in Renaissance Italy, emerged as a subject existing on paper in books and drawings and thus open to participation by lay people, in particular by the clients. And in the long run, this translation of the content of architecture to paper meant that buildings would be designed by educated people, by gentlemen on paper, and their designs would be executed by craftsmen. And over the 17th and 18th century, the craftsmen gradually lost their creative input and their freedom. And in the course of this, the architecture and engineering professions were formed. And Wren's career was an important stage in this development, the development of professions. And over the course of time, the gentlemen won out over the artisans. Architecture came into existence as a subject capable of existing on paper and in the mind. And the craftsmen had to do what they were told. Now, when you put it like that, that sounds fairly brutal to the craftsmen. But in Wren's lifetime, this great cultural change was in the process of happening. So architecture was coming to be seen in Italy and across Europe as a proper subject for educated gentlemen to study alongside mathematics and astronomy and anatomy because it had valuable practical applications and it was seen as part of higher culture. And in the 1660s, a number of educated gentlemen, most of whom were associated in some way with the Stuart court, began to design houses in a classical style. And there were men called Roger Pratt and Hugh May and William Samwell and John Webb. And there was a limited but developing tradition then of gentlemen architects who understood classical architecture as it emerged in Italy, producing designs for the craftsmen to follow. And then quite sudden development as an architect didn't happen in a vacuum. It should be understood in this context. There were educated gentlemen were becoming aware that classicism classical architecture was a sort of supposedly an artistically superior tradition with roots in the ancient world and that you needed to be educated to be a gentleman to understand it. And so Wren, because he did pretty much everything else, clearly felt and maybe his friends felt that he should have a go at architecture too. And in this spirit, in 1662, his uncle Matthew, who was the Bishop of Ely, commissioned him to design a chapel for Pembroke College, Cambridge. And so that was Wren's first building. Never built anything before. Uncle Matthew said, Christopher, you're a bright lad. Design me a chapel. And he did, which still stands. That's remarkable. So there was no such thing really as an architect before what kind of year, would you, would you say? Oh, Charles, one can't put exact year on these things, I'm afraid. The architectural profession was coming into being in Wren's lifetime, and he's one of the first people in English history who you could say was a professional architect. The only predecessors really would be Inigo Jones and John Webb, really in the previous generation, who were architects connected to the, the court of Charles I. But Wren, and in particular his work at the Office of Works, the official establishment, was an important stage in the development of the architectural profession. But even after he died, most building work in the British Isles was still carried out by craftsmen, and the craftsmen were still responsible for the design. It took a long time for this to play out. Did it add to the sophistication and the quality of buildings to have an architect now involved, as opposed to just the clients and the craftsmen? Ooh, that's very perceptive, Charles. 
certainly the architects would say that it did. And certainly there is a wide gap between the generality of buildings, sort of the ordinary village and provincial town buildings or that you see across England, and fine buildings like the one designed by Wren, because Wren understood the language of classical architecture and understood that it was a system of proportion. It wasn't just a matter of applying decorative detail to bodies which had been determined by largely practical considerations. I mean, people like Wren did understand that a classical building was supposed to be designed according to systems of proportion, which were generated by the classical orders, that is, the types of column. And so apologists for classical architecture would certainly say yes, but a great many people then and now would look at ordinary building built by craftsmen and say, well, actually, that looks more like a home. I like that better. There is, as always, an element of personal taste here. And the craftsmen continue to have a really important role in this because without their skills and their labour, nothing would get built at all anyway. Absolutely. I suppose it also depends on what kind of house you're looking at and what kind of craftsman and how qualified he was in making it. If you look at some of the uh, Tudor buildings, they're a bit wonky, aren't they? (laughs) They are a bit wonky, but a lot of people would say that that is part of their charm, part of their character. There are different kinds of architectural experience, aren't there? And sort of absolute fineness and refinement in a building, they're attractive qualities, but you wouldn't want everything to be like that, would you? And this is kind of important in Wren's career. One of the things that Wren did was to raise the standard of building craft in England to levels that it never really attained before, or only at the highest point of the Middle Ages. Did some of his inventions help in making buildings more fine and more precise? Not that I'm aware, though that is a very good question. Not that I'm aware, Charles, no. It was his uh, the way in which he organised his architectural practice and the way in which he managed his craftsmen, which did. Yes, that's a pioneering aspect to his uh, personality as well, I would say. Very interesting, a very organised man with lots of talents to organise as well. His first commission, though, this church, just remind us where that was and does it stand today? Pembroke College, Cambridge, does still stand. It had a, Its east end was extended in the 19th century, but it's still essentially here. It's a handsome, well-portioned rectilinear box, and the classical orders are very well understood because he had Palladio's four books of architecture to follow. And it was followed by a more challenging commission to design a new lecture theatre in Oxford, which was paid for by the Bishop of London, Gilbert Sheldon, and so it's called the Sheldonian Theatre. And this required Wren to build a D-shaped auditorium, which is about 75 feet across, and it has big roof joists. And Wren's design is probably more notable for the wide span roof than it is for the external architecture. So he was having to learn construction techniques and about building management, as well as the classical language of architecture, and apply his understanding of mathematics and geometry to structural design. And two more commissions followed at Trinity College, Oxford, and New Chapel through Manual College, Cambridge, in 1666. So Wren's first four buildings, Pembroke College Chapel, Emmanuel College Chapel, Cambridge, Trinity College, Oxford, a residential building, and the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford, they're all from 1662 to 6, and they're all at Oxford and Cambridge. In July 1665, Wren went to Paris, and he spent several months there, and he saw new French Baroque buildings, 
and he met a famous Italian architect, Gian Lorenzo Bernini, who was there to produce new designs for Louvre for Louis XIV. And that was a transformative experience for Wren, and it was the only time he ever left England. So commissions are coming in, the experiences are coming in, he's travelling, he's getting lots of inspiration, and he's sort of adding to his informal education, I suppose. But eventually, of course, we get to St Paul's Cathedral, which of course is his greatest work. But tragedy also strikes London. Can you tell us how the Great Fire of London had an impact on Wren's work? Well, the Great Fire was probably a turning point in Wren's career, really with hindsight. Had it not been for that cataclysmic event, Wren would probably have continued to be primarily an astronomer and scientist with a sideline in architecture. But the destruction of almost the whole of the city of London by fire, including the destruction of St Paul's Cathedral, created a need for architectural skills, which probably pulled Wren's career in a new direction. Now, St Paul's Cathedral, before the fire, was a vast, essentially 12th century building. The Eastern Arm had been rebuilt in the 14th century. It was enormously long. It was one of the biggest cathedrals in Europe. There'd been major repairs in the 1630s, but it was still in structural difficulties. Cracks were appearing in the piers under the tower. And in 1665, Wren had been asked by the king to inspect it, and he made a design, a rather odd-looking design, for replacing the central tower with a dome. But this was overtaken by events, by the Great Fire in September 1666, which destroyed most of the city and fatally damaged the cathedral and destroyed 80 churches. And at first it was thought that part of the cathedral might be salvageable, but by 1670 it was fairly clear that it was not. And Wren produced a, a succession of designs. And really he was appointed by King Charles II's influence to the commission to rebuild the cathedral. And after 1670, no one else was asked to produce designs for it. Can you describe then these designs that Sir Christopher Wren produced? There's a succession of schemes, as you might expect for something so complex. At first, there's something called the first model, because a rather damaged model does actually exist. This was essentially a big oblong space, which was probably meant to have a domed vestibule at its west end. But this wouldn't really have been nearly big enough. It would only have been about as big as it was the equivalent of the east end of the present cathedral. And next, there was something called the Greek cross design, a Greek cross means a cross with arms of equal length. And Wren's Greek cross design had the sides formed as concave curves rather than as an angle and a dome over the middle. So this would have had a great central space and four short arms opening off it. And the clergy said, well, yes, but that's not much like a traditional cathedral. Where's the nave? And so Wren produced what's called the Great Model Design. And an actual model was made of this by a joiner called William Clear at the king's direction. The king wanted a model so large that a man might stand up in it. And Wren had the great model built, which still exists and is kept at St Paul's Cathedral. And it is a truly magnificent model, the finest architectural model we have in this country. It's um, about 13 or 14 feet high. It's huge. And it represents a, a superb, a very perfect design. And the great model is essentially the Greek cross design. That is a cross with short arms and with concave quadrant curved sides, but with an extension at the west end 
with a subsidiary dome over it, so a big dome over the, uh, the middle of the Greek cross, a western extension with a subsidiary dome, and at the west end, the great portico is the entrance. And it's a marvellous design. Uh, it's um, a great masterpiece of design, magnificent and very coherent, but it didn't suit the clergy, firstly, because it couldn't be built in stages, and secondly, because it was really a vast single auditorium, not suitable for Anglican liturgy and arguably not suitable for any other kind of liturgy which existed then, and they rejected it. It's all rather surprising. You'd have thought that Wren would have known what kind of cathedral, what kind of shape of a building the Anglican clergy wanted, that they would want something shaped more like a Latin cross, that is, a cross where there was a long nave and a short eastern arm, like a traditional medieval cathedral. You'd have thought he would have understood that very well from his family background, and maybe he did, and he thought that his charm and the quality of the design would prevail, but it didn't. And so what followed is one of the most enigmatic episodes in English architectural history, and this is the production of the Warrant design and its relationship to the cathedral as built. The Warrant design was a Latin cross, that is a long nave and a relatively short eastern arm, and with a dome over the middle, but all expressed in quite plain, rather unambitious architecture, which really replicated a lot of the features of the cathedral as it had been before the Great Fire. Inigo Jones had rebuilt the west end of the cathedral, given it a new portico and a west front, and Wren, rather oddly, almost repeated that design in his warrant design, and there was a rather odd-looking central dome with a spire on top, and it's not very clear how that would have been constructed. So it was like a compromise design, one which provided the shape of a traditional Latin cross cathedral, one which could be built in stages from starting at the east end and opened in stages if need be, and one which took its architectural cue from the recasing of the old cathedral which had taken place in the 1630s. So it was strangely unambitious, but this was given the royal warrant, and Wren, crucially, was given permission by the king to vary the design, to vary the details as the need arose and as he thought fit. And that clause was the crucial get-out. So I think the warrant design should probably be understood as a paper exercise agreed between Wren and the commissioners and the king so that work could be started, so they had something to approve and initiate, but to allow Wren to develop the design as he went along, and to an extent that's what happened. And its west front was based on the new west front that Inigo Jones had added to Old St Paul's in the 1630s. So it was something which was in some ways quite close in appearance to St Paul's before the fire, and it was a very unambitious-looking scheme, but with a rather odd-looking central dome but it received the royal warrant, and it should probably be understood as a paper exercise to allow Wren to get started and to spare him further trial by committee. The foundations were laid in 1674 to 5, and they already departed from the warrant design, so Wren almost certainly never really intended to build it. It was meant as a paper exercise to mask his real intentions and also to allow him to develop the design in private discussions with his clients as he went along and not have to subject the whole thing to absolutely everyone's opinion, which he was clearly reluctant to do after having the great model rejected.
Yes, that can be quite difficult, isn't it? Uh, designed by committee, and yet there's one man building it, really, or at least instructing people to build it. So Wren produced the warrant design to satisfy them publicly, but meanwhile he was developing a variant of the warrant design, a very much more impressive variant, which is the cathedral was built. And he needed time to work out the detail of it, and in particular to work out how he was going to build it, what kind of dome he was going to put over the middle of it, and how the dome would stand up. And the king gave him a get-out clause in the royal warrant, which allowed him to vary the detail of the design as he pleased from time to time. And this really allowed Wren to vary the design so much that the cathedral was built bears absolutely no resemblance to the warrant design. It's a very enigmatic, enigmatic episode, and we don't have any documents which would record the discussions in which Wren took all of these decisions. I mean, quite probably, the meeting in question weren't minuted anyway. Do we know whether the king was ultimately happy with what was produced? When, when was the cathedral actually finished? Well, the cathedral was begun in 1675. King Charles died in 1685. The cathedral wasn't finished until 1710. So Charles II never saw it. But there is no doubt that royal support was crucial to Wren in relation to St Paul's and in relation to his career as a, whole, as a whole. And it speaks volumes for King Charles II's judgment that he backed Wren consistently and against considerable opposition at times. But even Charles II's support couldn't swing the great model and sign in favour of the great model for him. The cathedral then dominated the rest of Wren's life. It was only finished in 1710. Wren retired in 1718, uh, died, as you know, in 1723. And it involved lots and lots of design problems and structural problems, above all the problem of how to design and build the dome, of how to make such a thing stand. It was an almost unprecedented problem. There were only two precedents for such a thing in the Duomo in Florence and the Dome of St. Peter's in Rome. And Wren never went to Italy. Wren could see drawings of how Brunelleschi and Michelangelo had done it, but he had to work out his own structural solution, which he did with the help of his scientific friend Robert Hooke. And the dome and uh, drum in particular had been celebrated as a masterpiece of structural and aesthetic design ever since. And the cathedral is also a masterpiece of craftsmanship, and um, its stone masonry and the wood carving and the decorative ironwork and the decorative plasterwork Wren was, had a wonderfully sympathetic personality, something we'll come on to later, and he seems to have enjoyed very good and warm relations with his chief craftsmen, and there were a lot of city craftsmen who started working for him at St Paul's and worked for him right through the project on, and on other projects, men like the mason Edward Strong and the woodcarver Grinling Gibbons, and Wren used the same favoured craftsmen again and again, and they upped their game in response to his urging and his demands and his encouragement. And the building of St Paul's in particular helped to raise the standard of architectural crafts in this country to a new level, which was in part was essentially if you're going to get something as big as the Dome of St Paul's built and stand, you needed masonry of great precision and carpentry also. So, so the Keeble was a landmark in English architectural history in, in several ways. And it's one of the greatest individual achievements, I think, in all of our architectural history. 
And it's salutary to think that when Wren was entrusted with this awesome responsibility in 1670 to between 1670 and 1674, he slowly had four or five completed buildings to his credit. That is remarkable. It's a, a very big project for a young architect to have been involved in. When the cathedral was finished in 1710, as you've said, was there a grand opening? The cathedral was opened in stages and finally completed about 1710. And there was, I think, an inauguration and service of thanksgiving for its completion, which was attended by Queen Anne. So the whole construction took about 35 years. Amazing. The um, little churches that um, we were talking about earlier, they were damaged in the Great Fire of London around the same time as St Paul's. Is that right? And did he have to work on improving those again? Well, not so much improving as in most cases completely rebuilding, although a few of them were, were repaired. Yes, in the, the 16th century, London had over a 100 parishes and churches, most of which were very small, and most of the parishes were just one or two streets. It's an extraordinary fact, and not one that I really understand or can account for. By 1666, this had been reduced to about 80 parishes in the city of London, and almost all of those churches were totally destroyed or very badly damaged by the Great Fire. And the Commission for Rebuilding London after the fire, on which Wren sat, agreed a reduction from 80 to 52. Now, a few of them had essentially survived the fire and just required re-roofing extensive repair, but the great majority required complete rebuilding. So what you have to picture is that in the 1670s and 80s, Wren was a commissioner for the rebuilding of London, and that would have been a substantial job because it involved supervising this gigantic effort of clearing, laying out new streets and setting conditions for rebuilding and monitoring that. He was the architect for New St Paul's, for demolishing the old cathedral and starting work on the new one. And he was on the committee to rebuild the city churches, of which there were 52. And he was doing all of this on the basis of having had no formal training in architecture because none was available. And he was having to learn about architecture, construction management and structural engineering and all related matters all on the largest possible scale as he went along as he was doing all of these things. And he was doing other things at the time. So that's a measure of his phenomenal intellect and extraordinary mental capacity and capacity for work. The city churches are by no means all by Wren, although they are forever associated with his name. There were a couple of other architects who helped with them, in particular his scientist friend Robert Hooke, who is known to have designed a number of them. Wren probably devised most of the plans for them, and the city churches were mostly on rather constrained city sites, and Wren had to be inventive in fitting a workable plan onto a sometimes rather irregular site. And he devised two basic types. One is what you might call centrally planned, where there's a central space designed by columns, and longitudinal, where there's a longish nave with aisles to either side. So the first type, the centrally planned one, well, the most famous examples would be the very beautiful St. Stephen Walbrook, that's the church that's just behind the mansion house, or St. Mary Ab Church, which is only a few hundred yards away from that in the city, or St. Martin Ludgate. And the longer kind, a longish nave, 
that might be illustrated by St Magnus Martyr, which is the one by the north end of London Bridge, or St Bride on Fleet Street, that's the one with the very tall pagoda-like tower. And the churches are modest in effect compared to the elaborate Baroque churches that were being built in continental cities, but this is partly because a great many of them were required and hell had to go up at the same time. In any case, the Protestant English didn't want very elaborate Baroque effects. They wanted simple, beautifully proportioned spaces in which to hear readings from the Bible and sing hymns and psalms and hear the word of God in sober, well-finished settings. And so the churches are a very interesting case study of joint responsibility in architecture, with Wren providing the plans and the craftsmen, the builders, the carpenters and bricklayers and masons, probably having quite a lot of leeway in how they interpreted his plans because Wren trusted them, although he kept them to very high standards. And later on, Wren had a clerk and assistant called Nicholas Hawksmoor, who will return to, and Hawksmoor had quite a big hand in the churches too, especially when it came to adding spires to them. Are they fairly similar then, these collection of churches that Wren had a hand in? Well, they are and they aren't, Charles. There is, uh, There are unifying characteristics and you could say that there is uh, there's a definable character of a city church, but actually individually they're all very different to each other. It's not as if Wren created a standard design and then used it on all the sites, not like that at all actually. There are the two basic types, the centrally planned one and the longitudinal one, but they all look quite different. Of the city churches, a great many have gone. Of the 52, about half have disappeared in late 19th century demolition or in wartime damage and been bombed and burnt down. And so the, the, the 20 odd we have left uh, form a rather precious survivals. And even of those, some had to be completely rebuilt after wartime damage. But nevertheless, they are actually very varied in design, but they, there is a sort of uniform feeling to them, which arises from them having been built by the same craftsmen and with the similar decorative language. So they're a very interesting case study of what authorship in architecture means. Wren might have been the overall guiding hand, and he may have provided the designs, but his designs were being interpreted by highly skilled craftsmen who Wren trusted to interpret his design, and they had quite a lot of leeway in designing things like the panelling and the fittings themselves. Now, in later centuries, the craftsmen no longer had that kind of independence. But Wren was prepared to trust his craftsmen to design the details, I think, in, in quite a lot of ways. Did um, Wren work for King Charles II on other commissions? You've already obviously described the fact that uh, he was uh, working alongside the king on St Paul's Cathedral, the, uh, the remake after the fire. Yes, yes, in 1669, so three years after the Great Fire, Wren was appointed surveyor of works to the king. The surveyor of works, in the Middle Ages, it was like the king's master mason. In the 16th and 17th centuries, it became the surveyor of works, was the man who ran the Royal Works Organisation, which was in charge uh, of maintaining all the royal buildings and palaces throughout the country. So the surveyor had a very broad remit. He had to maintain a great many existing buildings, a lot of which might be in very rather poor condition, supervise maintenance and make any alterations needed. And he could be called on to design any of this or get other people to design it. And if there was a royal event which required temporary structures or elaborate decoration, or if it was something like the, the stable drains needed to be relayed, or if the kitchen had to be repainted, 
the surveyor was responsible. So the surveyor had a very busy job, really. So Wren was fulfilling this very busy role from 1669, and he was designing St Paul's, and he was on the Commission for Rebuilding the City of London, and he was on the Committee for the City Churches and designing all of those. So he was a very busy man indeed in the 1670s and 80s. Charles II liked and trusted Wren, but he'd already entrusted two major palace projects to other people. Actually, he'd already entrusted a palace project at Greenwich to John Webb, and in the 1670s, probably because Wren was so fully stretched, the other great palace project, a renovation of Windsor Castle, was given to Hugh May, who was another of the gentleman architects. I think that was a, a massive project in itself, and Wren probably said he simply couldn't undertake it, and that May would make a very good job of it, which he did. So Wren was left with relatively small jobs for the king, rebuilding the royal apartments at Whitehall Palace. But in the 1680s, there were two more major projects commissioned by Charles II, which gave him the opportunity to design secular buildings on a grand scale. And they were the Royal Hospital Chelsea and uh, Winchester Palace. The Royal Hospital Chelsea is very well known because it still exists. It's a great London institution. It was founded by Charles II as a home for retired or wounded soldiers, and it was modelled on the Hospital des Invalides in Paris, which had been founded by his cousin, Louis XIV, as a home for retired soldiers. And England now also had a professional standing army. And Wren designed it, simple brick ranges with hipped roofs, spacious and simple accommodation for the old soldiers, and fairly simple use of grand classical motifs, big Doric portico and Doric colonnades. And so it's quite a sober, simple-looking building on a very grand scale, though, and it's a prominent element in the London scene. Winchester Palace is a very different matter, and not least because it's uh, completely disappeared. Uh, many listeners may not have heard of it. Winchester was an ancient capital of England with a huge decaying medieval castle, and it was on the road to the Channel Ports, for contact with France and Charles's cousin, Louis XIV. Now, Charles was in receipt of a secret subsidy from Louis XIV under the secret Treaty of Dover in 1672, which most of his subjects did not know. Charles was paid a secret subsidy, partly to keep him sweet and keep him on side, while Louis XIV tried to settle the Dutch once and for all. So, for Charles, the connection with France, this source of massive a secret subsidy was an important one. And Winchester was on the road to France, and it was away from London, which was still famously Puritan Protestant city, and where there were a lot of elements who were potentially hostile to the court. And so Charles decided to build a new palace there, not just outside London, but at Winchester, which might seem rather a surprising idea then, but probably has to be understood in the context of the politics of his reign. And he demolished most of the medieval castle, except for its great hall, which still stands. And in 1683 to 85, this great big red brick building went up like a U-shaped plan, loosely based on Versailles, but much more simply executed, of course. And this rose really quite quickly to great suites of Baroque state apartments uh, for Charles and his queen. And it was just getting roofed when Charles died in 1685 and work stopped immediately. 
and eventually the building was fitted out as barracks and it descended into being a prison for prisoners of war and then in the 19th century it was barracks and then it was demolished in the late 19th century. So Winchester Palace has totally gone, but actually it was an important project for Wren at the time as the opportunity to design a complete new palace. And in terms of Wren's career, it was one of the models for his later work at, at Hampton Court. Mm, that's a real shame about Winchester Palace. Yes, it is rather. It was a very impressive building. Yeah, so what, what stands in its place today? Barracks. There was a fire, the palace was badly damaged, it was subsequently demolished, and a group of barrack buildings, which rather loosely recapitulate its architecture, stand on its site. They're sort of behind the Great Hall at Winchester, if people know that. Winchester, of course, um, historically very important um, for a number of reasons. A former capital, wasn't it? Winchester had been a capital of Wessex in Saxon times and so was um, was a royal capital before the Norman Conquest, yes. Another fun fact about Winchester, of course, is that uh, the writer and novelist Jane Austen is buried at Winchester Cathedral in the county of Hampshire there. So that's, that's a good one for if you're wanting to, um, you know, do some visiting around Winchester. We've talked about his collaborations and commissions with King Charles II. Were any other monarchs giving him work? Charles II died in 1685 and was succeeded by his brother James II, who'd been the Duke of York, and who was openly Catholic. So the English now had an openly Catholic king, although they were a predominantly Protestant nation. And James II, of course, managed to alienate his subjects so much as to prompt a revolution, the Glorious Revolution, as it was later called, in 1688-9, when he was ejected from the throne and replaced by his own daughter and son-in-law, Queen Mary II and William of Orange, William III. So Wren actually built a very splendid Catholic chapel for James II at Whitehall Palace, which um, was completely destroyed subsequently. So he did work for Charles II and for Catholic James II, and he remained in post as surveyor when James II was exiled and the new regime came in. And the new regime turned England's foreign policy to 180 degrees, and from being allied to France, England became the HQ of resistance through the 14th, with his ambition to dominate Europe. But although France was now the enemy, the gravitational pull of French culture remained irresistible. And so what one has to try and imagine is a rather complex set of attitudes towards European culture, and in particular towards France, which was by now the great enemy. But France was the great sort of source of things like fashion and styles of dining and entertaining and interior design and use of the French language and court etiquette. All these things came from France, and France's cultural pull, gravitational pull really remained irresistible through the 1680s and 90s. Though in architecture, England had evolved its own native-grown kind of classical style, quite simple, mostly of brick, with hipped roofs, upright window proportions, a very restricted use of classical ornament, the kind of building built by bricklayers and masons like Christopher Kempster and John Fitch, the people who built Wren's buildings for him. And display was reserved for things like carved door cases or grand staircases, or for, for richly decorated plaster ceilings, mostly made by a man called Edward Pierce. And quite a lot of Wren's known works, 
include buildings in this sort of simple English manner, like the Royal Hospital of Chelsea on a grand scale, or some of the city churches like St. Bennet Paul's Wharf. And from 1689, uh, Wren was working on remodelling Kensington Palace for the new monarchs, William and Mary, as a grand suburban residence. Uh, and Wren extended what had been Nottingham House, which became Kensington Palace, in several stages, mostly in this rather sort of simple English vernacular classical style with simple brick walls and hipped roofs. There were no grand statements there or grand effects with columns and pediments and domes. However, as the surveyor, there were other opportunities for grander works which came along in the reign of William and Mary in the 1690s, and uh, three in particular um, at Hampton Court Palace, William and Mary decided to make it their main out-of-town residence. There was a vast, decrepit Tudor palace, which was very out-of-date, and Wren produced ambitious designs for a near-complete rebuilding, all on the scale of Versailles. But England was actually at war with France, and his grand scheme was unaffordable. So instead, Wren designed a rebuilding of the royal apartments, about half of the palace. The Tudor royal lodgings were demolished, and they were replaced in a simple, dignified English classical style, which owed quite a lot to his um, palace at Winchester, which was still standing incomplete, which he'd begun for Charles II. So the new royal lodgings at Hampton Court, rather like the palace at Winchester, of bright red brick and white Portland stone, taking their quality from their portions and superb craftsmanship. And um, both Winchester Palace and the new half of Hampton Court were very English kind of statement compared to the bombast of Versailles, or indeed Wren's own unexecuted design. And at Greenwich, the monarchs gave another unfinished royal palace, which had been a palace in the 16th century, and which Charles II had started rebuilding. And they gave this incomplete royal palace um, to be a new hospital for wounded or invalid sailors as an equivalent to the Royal Hospital at Chelsea. And Wren produced a, a brilliant master plan which incorporated the block that Charles II had built as part of an intended palace and the Queen's House, which was like a miniature palace building which Inigo Jones had built in the 1620s and 30s for Anne of Denmark, James I's wife, and Henrietta Maria, Charles I's wife. And so Wren produced a master plan at Greenwich, which is really one of the acknowledged masterpieces of English architecture. And the Royal Hospital buildings rose gradually over about a 50-year period following his master plan with this magnificent axis, a very famous view from the River Thames up to the Queen's House. And that was a much more overtly impressive Baroque sort of composition and is probably the most uh, Baroque thing Wren ever built. The third of these projects was a design for rebuilding Whitehall Palace in the centre of London. Whitehall Palace had been like a sort of a town centre, more than like a, a symmetrically planned palace, with a, a great array of rather informally laid out buildings, and it was very badly damaged by fire in 1698. And Wren produced a, a design for a magnificent rebuilding in a sort of Roman Baroque manner, between 1698 and 1700, and there are a number of variants on this, and some of the designs are in the hands of his assistant, Nicholas Hawksmoor, but they were never executed. But these designs, the designs for, for Whitehall, were very 
sort of major source of inspiration for the next generation in English architecture, in particular for Wren's colleagues, Nicholas Hawksmoor and John Vanborough. And I think we come to this next, really. Yes. Just before we do, just a quick comment from me, if that's mm. OK. Um, it sounds as though that Wren derived a lot of influence from the continent, but he wasn't copying in any way. He was just sort of being inspired and then placing elements into this developing English architectural style. Would that be a, a fair assessment? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Wren applied the sort of principles that he had developed as a scientist to architecture. And so his major buildings have a very sort of span a wide range of appearance and approach to planning because he approached each building individually as an individual problem to be solved. He didn't develop sort of basic plans and then apply them to every site. The city churches are all different and all his major buildings are different. They are solutions to individual problems. And for some of them, he adopted quite a simple sort of English red brick manner, like the Royal Hospital at Chelsea. And to some, he adopted a much more overtly grand Roman Baroque feeling with, uh, with extensive use of the classical orders and elaborate rusticated surfaces, like above all the Royal Hospital at Greenwich. So it's this individual approach to individual buildings that really helps uh, make him very successful. And I think also perhaps his individual approach to dealing with people is part of that success. Because as you've mentioned already, Wren worked closely with his craftsmen, but he also gave them some freedom to express themselves. So obviously from that, it sounds like he was a very pragmatic, approachable, uh, likeable individual. Would, Would that be about right? Yes, certainly. Everything we know about Wren suggests that he was a kind, thoughtful man, considerate to those who worked with him and for him, appreciative of their work and supportive of their careers while insisting on very high standards. Uh, And you should bear in mind that this was in an age and a culture which did not necessarily encourage such qualities at all. An age when arrogance and awareness of status and assertion of status and getting ahead of others in the rat race at court were very common attitudes and actually were expected of people in the higher echelons of society. Wren's admirable personal qualities would have stood out and were not necessarily the qualities which would normally guarantee success. I mean, those less attractive qualities were displayed in very full measure by one of Wren's immediate colleagues, a man called William Tolman, who was another of these gentleman architects, an architect of great distinction, and who was Wren's colleague as controller, that is, uh, strictly speaking, the man who controlled the accounts at the Office of Works, answerable directly to Wren. But Tolman wanted independence in his role and to manage his own jobs, and really he wanted the top job, he wanted the surveyorship. And it's clear that Tolman was an arrogant and difficult personality. And in 1689, there was an accident in the work at Hampton Court, arising from the royal demands for extreme haste. Wren was under great pressure from William and Mary, and two workmen were killed and 11 were injured. And Tolman sent in a report overtly putting the blame on Wren, who was his boss and exculpating himself, And this and other incidents show that Tolman was manipulating to get Wren sacked in the hope that he would replace him. Unfortunately, this did not happen. And Tolman actually was sacked from several of his own country house commissions 
because he was, it would seem, a very difficult personality. But Ben's admirable personal qualities were certainly expressed in his much happier relations with his two other colleagues at the Office of Works, Nicholas Hawksmoor and John Danborough. And they were people who came from very different directions, but Wren got on extremely well with them both, and they both liked, and I think one could say revered Wren. Hawksmoor was from a very humble background and joined the office as a clerk, and he worked as a draftsman for Wren. So he's someone who joined the office in a very humble capacity. Wren trained him as a draftsman. He became indispensable, and Hawksmoor ultimately, although he was a personally very modest man, became a brilliant and highly original architect, one of the finest England has ever known, quite largely thanks to Wren's support and training and encouragement and mentoring, which allowed Hawksmoor to develop architecturally as his own man. Now, a lot of people would have used Hawksmoor as a slave, really, and not Wren. And you could say that Hawksmoor was a more original designer than Wren. Hawksmoor contributed to the design of St Paul's. He probably designed the West Towers. He designed many of the famous spires on the London city churches, that were formerly attributed to Wren. And so you have to imagine situations in which Wren would say, my, my dear Hawksmoor, I think this, is, uh, <laughs> this requires your talents more than mine. And Wren actually stepping back and encouraging his brilliant deputy to take on these aspects, actually some of his own buildings, because he trusted Hawksmoor and re- realised that Hawksmoor was, was very special. Now, Vanber was in a very different sort of situation. Vanber was another gentleman architect with political connections, and he was appointed controller when Tolman was sacked in 1702. And it's not at all clear what Ben would have thought of him. Vanber was had been a soldier and a wine merchant and a playwright, and he's a very funny, witty man about town. And suddenly he's there as the controller. But fortunately, Vanber was warm-hearted and fundamentally nice a man, as Tolman was nasty. And Vanber was already designing a vast new country house, Castle Howard in Yorkshire, with literally no previous experience of architecture and building at all. Now that is, as they say, another story. And Wren and Hawksmoor, between them, recognised that Vanber was an unlikely genius and supported him. And Hawksmoor became his assistant. And Vanber went on to get the commission to design Blenheim Palace for the Duke of Marlborough, which Wren might have expected himself. A political operator in Wren's shoes would have tried to get the Blenheim job by himself. Wren recognised that Vanber was a genius in a quite different way to himself and probably helped him to get the role. So both Hawksmoor and Vanber could be said to have surpassed Wren in the originality of their executed works, but they were able to get there at all was because of Wren's support, training and mentoring of them both. And architecturally, they built on the foundations that he laid. And Wren's own and executed designs for Hampton Court and Whitehall, which probably themselves embodied major contributions from Hawksmoor, suggest that the English Baroque style expressed at Greenwich and in Castle Howard and at Blenheim Palace was something worked up in collaboration between them and that Hawksmoor and Vanber's achievements were built by standing on Wren's shoulders and by him being prepared to step back and push them forward. He was an absolute gentleman and he was a deeply nice man. Yes, he was. whilst he was developing his own career, he was also developing other people's careers, which is, um, as you say, rare for the time. Yes, he absolutely did. And for someone in his position in that, and in that culture... It is really the opposite of what you would expect. You would expect people to behave like Tolman did, not as Wren did. But we should be deeply grateful 
that Wren was there, not Tolman, uh, because he was not only an architect of the very first rank himself, he was capable of recognising comparable talent in others. And that, I think, is a very rare quality indeed. Were these qualities remarked upon by the people who he was mentoring at the time and by subsequent generations of architects? I don't think they've been very overtly recognised. Hawksmoor and Vanbra would certainly have been profoundly aware of what they owed to Wren, and Hawksmoor in particular. Hawksmoor was a personally very modest man, and other people remarked on his own modesty. And I think if it hadn't been for Wren, to an extent, protecting him, helping to get jobs and pushing him, I don't think Hawksmoor would have got to the front in such a competitive society at all. How was his work viewed by the next generation who were adopting new styles of architecture? Because things start to move on, don't they, in Wren's later life in terms of style? Yes, they absolutely do, Charles. And as so often happens, later generations were simply, later generation was simply not capable of appreciating the achievements of one immediately before it. This very often happens, and this certainly happens then. A new kind of classical architecture was appearing. Well, what's called Palladian architecture, named after Andrea Palladio, the 16th century northern Italian architect, which is really about a stricter application of the classical principles of design and uh, an understanding that classicism is supposed to be a system of formulae for producing regular, consistent, almost modular designs on all occasions, whereas Wren's approach as we've seen, was a very pragmatic one, which produced very varied architectural responses. Now, there were a number of people in England, the nobleman Lord Burlington, Scottish architect called Colin Campbell in particular, and a Yorkshire-born artist called William Kent, who between them, in their different ways, were developing this new kind of stricter classical architecture. And there were other figures involved. And there was Wren getting on now at the Office of Works, and starting to be criticised for his lack of awareness of the true principles of classical architecture. And by George I's reign, when all the Tories were out of office, Wren was a figure from another age, and he had few friends left at court. And in 1718, he was finally dismissed as surveyor in favour of a man called William Benson. And this was an absolute example of political placemanship, of the sort of Tolman principle, triumphing, except Benson didn't have anything like either Tolman or Wren's talent. He was a corrupt, self-seeking Whig politician who was so corrupt and incompetent that he was dismissed after less than a year in office. He just used the office to try and enrich and advance his own, himself and advance his own career. And Wren was dismayed to see his friends, Hawksmoor and Vanbrugh, sacked from the office as well, men whose careers he'd fostered and done so much to develop. And by the 1720s, Palladian-inspired classical architecture was becoming established as the new taste, and the architecture of Wren and Hawksmoor and Vanbrugh of their generation was increasingly criticised. So it was a long time, it wasn't until well into the 19th century, that Wren's architecture was really appreciated and admired for its wonderful, its outstanding qualities again. Across his illustrious career, how many buildings did Sir Christopher Wren have a hand in? Well, I counted the entries in Howard Colvin's great biographical dictionary, and there are 103, which I know doesn't sound very many. And what you have to bear in mind, that that includes about, fi- about half of those are city churches. 
and of the others, well, St. Paul's Cathedral is one entry, the Royal Hospital Chelsea is one entry, designing a door case at Longleat House, which has since disappeared, is also one entry. So the list is, to say there are 100 works would be highly misleading. So in absolute terms, it's not all that many buildings are you know, a matter of um, of a few dozens, and then there's the case of the of the city churches. But this really doesn't quite capture the breadth of Wren's influence, because in terms of standards in building craftsmanship and in architectural practice, in the use of architectural drawings to control work, Wren was was really one one of the makers of modern architectural culture, and his career was an important stage in the development of the architectural profession and the use of architectural drawings. So he's historically important in all sorts of ways, and just quoting the number of buildings doesn't quite capture that. The connection to Longleat House in Wiltshire, which is uh, in southwest Wiltshire, is uh, an interesting connection. Would have been quite near home. I, I don't know if he even went to see it. We know he designed a new door case there, which was subsequently replaced. But the point there is that uh, there might be a hundred odd works, some are very minor and some are absolutely huge. A good one for the tourist trail if you're visiting the uh, Stonehenge area, which we'll come to in just a sec, actually. But um, are there any other English heritage sites where there is a a link to Wren? Well, there are a few, although none of them are buildings which were actually designed by him. They're instances, rather, of the nature of Wren's work and influence. For instance, he went and reported on Eltham Palace, which was then very derelict, but he didn't work there. At Audley End, the great Jacobean country house in Essex, which belonged to Charles II, he went and inspected it, and a lot of it was in very poor condition. Wren wasn't very impressed by the original standards of the workmanship, but he, he actually recommended that parts of it be demolished. Abingdon County Hall, a superb market house, really, in Abingdon, in the south of in Berkshire, is really an instance of Wren's influence on contemporary building culture rather than the building designed by him. It was designed and built by a mason called Christopher Kempster, who was one of the masons that Wren had employed on St Paul's Cathedral. And so Abingdon County Hall is really an example of the way Wren encouraged higher standards of craftsmanship and design by the masons who worked for him, who then went on to build other buildings outside London like this one. We just mentioned Stonehenge, of course, uh, the Wiltshire connection. Wren is also thought to have left his mark at Stonehenge. One of the historic graffiti on Stonehenge has the name Wren, which it has been speculated is Sir Christopher, but we don't know whether it's true or not. I find it a little difficult to imagine myself, I have to say, Charles. Okay, it says I Wren, doesn't it, or something? Is that right? Uh, It does, I believe. Yes. Like it could have been him, or it could have been uh, a descendant, or it could have been someone before him. Was it him? We don't know. Perhaps it is. It's um. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't know. And is there a blue plaque to Sir Christopher Wren in London? Because obviously there's the London Blue Plaque Scheme, which English Heritage uh, organises. Wren ordinarily resided in the surveyor's lodgings at Old Scotland Yard, which have long disappeared, and so his blue plaque is at the old courthouse at Hampton Court, where he resided occasionally during his professional life, and that's where he moved after his dismissal as surveyor in 1718. So he lived there for most of his last years, from 1718 
but he died in 1723 at his son Christopher Wren Jr.'s house in St. James's Street, Piccadilly, at the age of 90. So the blue plaque is on the surviving residence, a very fine late 17th century brick house, which he may have designed himself, the old courthouse at Hampton Court. And it's on the wall just outside, isn't it? So you can see it from the road, Mm. which is good. Okay. St Paul's Cathedral, of course, most people would say it's his most famous work, arguably his greatest as well. Oh yes, certainly true. To have the opportunity to design and build a whole cathedral, and one on the largest scale, in the, in the nation's capital, and a building which has subsequently become a national icon and world famous, yes, would be the summit of any architect's career. And Wren made of St Paul's a masterpiece. The building has often been criticised. This is partly, I think, because it's so very so visible and so well documented. But it is an, an endlessly satisfying building to walk around, either outside or in, with a wealth of very beautiful detail. And it's also a masterpiece of both architectural and structural design. And the dome, one of the most famous episodes in the history of structural engineering and a great masterpiece structurally and aesthetically. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you can walk through and around it and around that dome because there's the whispering gallery, isn't there, that you can literally do a whole circle of. And that's uh, wonderful in its slightly terrifying way. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Very high up. But um, there's also a little nod to Wren at St Paul's Cathedral in a very special way, isn't there? There's There's a plaque... Uh, whereabouts is that in the cathedral? Under the centre of the dome, you'll find a circular area of paving with an inscription commemorating Wren, and it says, Lector si monumentum requiris circum speche. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we celebrate some of the women who've played a pivotal role in England's history. She actually presides over one of the most important synods in English history, the Synod of Whitby. She carves out a space for herself that is just unrivaled. Even now, we're still celebrating the rise of women through the Church of England that we're allowed to have women bishops. Well, Hilda was doing it back in the 7th century. Thanks for listening. See you next time.